Today's reading is Mark 15, 25 through 39. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema shabbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And when the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King's Quest students, first to fourth graders, you can head to the lobby and everyone else can be seated. Good morning, everybody. I think we've got the tech situation figured out. Our amps were turning on and off, but regardless... Somehow the church survived for about like 1,900 years without amplification. Actually, no, 1,950 years probably. So we'll be okay either way. I'll just speak really loud. The good news is one of the things that made it hardest to do tech here is this room is built for, for sound, right? It's made for a choir and for spoken word. And so if somehow the amps go out, I'm just going to be really loud, okay? Well, my name's Jake. Uh, I co-lead our high school youth ministry here with Johanna Turner, and uh, I also do just a, a lot of other odd, fun jobs around here, one of which is getting to preach, which I love doing. Um, so I'm very excited to be up here today. And I am a married man. I've been married to my wife, Ryan, for two years now. And yeah, that's right. Uh, and it was, well, and I should say, We've got this whole marriage thing figured out now, so if you need any advice, just come to us. We'd be happy to help. <laughs> Not really. Uh, but it was almost exactly three years ago, in fact, it might have been exactly three years ago, that I picked up Ryan's engagement ring. 
And this was a secret. She didn't know. I remember the day I drove to a jeweler in L.A. I, I paid for it, the best a youth pastor's salary could get. I grabbed the box. I drove home. I was living with Chris and Janie Turner at the time. And so I remember taking the, the box up to the room, sitting on the bed, opening it up, and just going, wow. And the sunlight was coming in through the window, and I remember turning it in my hand and being mesmerized by it because there were so many facets on this diamond. There's so many different angles to it, and each one, when I turned it, it felt like it revealed a new, beautiful side of the ring as it reflected and refracted the light. It was beautiful. It was beautiful because it was multifaceted. And we've been in a series called Snapshots of Jesus, where each week we've looked at a different scene from the life of Jesus, and today we're going to end that series. And we're going to end it by looking at what I would say is, alongside the resurrection, the most important moment in Jesus' life, and that's him on the cross. All four Gospels talk about it. We know that the accounts of Jesus' life were recorded four times, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so all of them spend a great deal of time talking about this moment. And so today we're going to look at just one of those accounts. You heard it read wonderfully today by Ramona. Thank you, Ramona. We're going to look at Mark's account. And specifically, we're going to look at just one verse of Mark's account. And it's verse 34. It's the question that Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's interesting about Mark is this is the only thing Mark records Jesus saying on the cross. Now, we know Jesus said other things as well, right, because we have four accounts. Sometimes we hear that and we're like, whoa, 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 wait, are, are, like, is Mark contradicting Luke? Is John saying something different than Matthew? No, it's, it's like when I was in film school, we had an editing class, given the same footage, and the assignment was edit this together into a five-minute scene, and then we'll watch everybody's. And what was fascinating was we all had the same footage, we were all telling the same story, but the subtle editorial changes just brought out different nuances. And so that's kind of how the Gospels work, too. Same footage, it's the life of Jesus, same story, but as the Holy Spirit guided each author, they made sure to highlight certain things that we shouldn't miss. And this is the most important event in human history, so there's a lot of things that we want to see about it. And so, as the Holy Spirit guides Mark, you could say that there's a lot left on the cutting room floor, but this is the one thing that we're supposed to hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And like that diamond ring that I gave Ryan, I think this statement has a lot of facets to it. I think it has a lot of angles. And so like a ring, we're going to hold it up, we're going to turn it, and we're going to see three different sides to it. We're going to see just how beautiful this question is that Jesus screams out. Sound good? Okay, so three facets of this forsakenness. And I'll say this really quickly, too, right before I jump in. My translation, I'm using English Standard Version, it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know we don't really use that word anymore, 
right? You're never like, how are you, man? Oh, I feel so forsaken by my friends, right? Nobody says that. So probably an appropriate, um, more common wording might be abandoned. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I'm going to go with forsaken just because that's what's like on the page and I'm just going to keep reading it. But if you need to translate that in your mind, if abandoned works better, you have my okay. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's hold this diamond ring up. Let's look at the first facet. And it's simply this. I think that this question that Jesus screams out reveals this truth that God fulfills his plan. God fulfills. You'll need your Bible open today. We're going to do some jumping around. So um, verse 34 at the ninth hour, so it's 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice. You did a better job with it than me, Ramona. I don't know how to speak Aramaic, but somehow you learned it, so thank you. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, or however you say it. The point is, Mark's recording that Jesus says this in Aramaic. Why does he record that? Long story short, we actually don't know why. <laughs> it seems that at important moments in the life of Jesus, uh, Mark records him speaking in Aramaic because that was the language Jesus would have spoken every day. And so probably this, it's for a few reasons, but one of them is probably just to say, pay attention to what he's about to say. This is important. And he translates it for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you jump back to the beginning of verse 34 where he says, Eloi or Eloi, is there a little letter in your Bible right there or a number or an asterisk? Do you guys see that? Well, if you find that and then jump down to the bottom of your page, you're going to see that it says Psalm 22 verse 1, right? I'm not just making this up. So go ahead and flip back in your Bibles to Psalm 22 verse 1. It, I don't know the page, but it's somewhere roughly in the middle. And as we read it, this is what we see. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I'm in grad school, so I read that and I go, plagiarism, Jesus is plagiarizing. But he's not. <laughs> he is the author of Scripture, after all. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 right now. He's quoting the first half of the first verse. And this is an interesting thing because when um, victims were being crucified, I'll try not to get too graphic today, but you didn't have a lot of strength. You certainly did not have a lot of strength to speak. And so for him to quote this psalm in this moment, it means something. It's not just, well, I memorized this verse when I was a kid. Let me say it. No, we're trying to be shown something. And here's what's interesting is Psalm 22 was written probably about a thousand years before Jesus was even born, written by a distant ancestor of his, King David. But it's crazy how much it lines up with what's going, what's going on in this moment to Jesus. The, the academic theological word for it is spooky. It's spooky. This is a little weird. Let's look at it together. The words on the screen might be kind of small, but um, I'll read it for you if you can't read it. So first of all, yeah, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus quotes that part. 
Jump down to verse 7. It says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. If you jump back to Mark, verse 29, it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Right, right there already, there's, there's some language. Mark's saying, look, there's some similarity of what's happening right now. Keep reading verse 8. It says, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And I'm, I'm going to cheat for a moment. I'm going to jump to the book of Matthew, because Matthew makes this really clear. Matthew records what is said to Jesus as he's mocked. The chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself, he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. That's the same wording that's being stated a thousand years before in this psalm. There's more, though. Verse 16 of Psalm 22, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. What does that sound like? Mark 15, verse 24, and they crucified him. They pierced his hands and his feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Back to Mark, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. Spooky, right? It lines up exactly with what's going on in this moment. I think here's the point that Jesus is making, one of these facets that he's making and that Mark's making as well by reporting it, is this. God's plan is being fulfilled. In this moment, God's plan is being fulfilled. And we hear that and it's like, well, no, duh. Right? He needs to die so he can come back three days later. Right? That's, we know that. But in this moment... The cross did not look like fulfillment. It looked like absolute failure. I remember I worked at Forest Home for a summer doing tech, and one of the pastors was like, if you take someone from Jesus' day and drop them right now on the Forest Home campus and let them wander for an hour, they're going to come back and say, I got to get out of here. What is this place? Some sort of execution camp? You have crosses everywhere. Right, and it's funny, but it's true. It's like we wear crosses, you know, as jewelry. We put them in our cross. We put them up in beautiful stained glass. It's a beautiful thing for us. It was not a beautiful thing then. It was the electric chair. It was lethal injection. It's capital punishment, but much more painful, much more shameful, much more public. And so now the guy who said he's bringing God's kingdom has just been put to death by the oppressing kingdom. The guy who said that he's going to bring life is minutes away from dying. This looks like failure. And so I believe that Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, and Mark makes really clear to draw out the comparison because what's being shown is 
Yeah, this looks like failure, but it's not. God's plan is being fulfilled. God's plan is perfectly being fulfilled in this moment as Jesus is on the cross. And if you need proof, go check out Psalm 22. And that's a fun, like, little exercise in cross-referencing. But I think it's more than that. I think this is actually something that we need to remember and know in our lives as well. That God fulfills his plan. Because here's the deal. Um, Praise God, I, I trust that none of us will ever be crucified. I'm glad we've moved past that as a human race. Um... But we will suffer in life, right? I know some of you. Some of you have suffered immensely in life. And sometimes there are things that are just so impossible, so painful, so difficult, so confusing, that it's hard to possibly imagine that God could be at work in the midst of it. Right? It's hard to imagine that his plan in our life could be fulfilled when things seem to go so wrong. You walk into a boss's office on Friday expecting a little conversation, you find out you're being let go. And now your family's in financial instability. You have finally just set down roots at your school and made friends, things are going great, and then your parents let you know we're moving again. You go to the doctor's office expecting just another routine checkup and you walk out with news that has forever changed your life. These are real things. Things that have happened to us. For a moment, I don't want to minimize or, you know, it's no big deal. God's in control. No, it's painful. It's imaginably painful. But that doesn't change the fact that God fulfills his plans. Circumstances don't ruin God's plan, but God can fulfill his plan even through terrible circumstances. And if you want proof of that, look at the cross. What looked like the absolute biggest failure, lowest moment, God being put to death is in fact the thing that brought us life. God's in control. God fulfills his plans. So that's the first facet that we see. But let's turn the diamond again, okay? Let's look at this thing from another angle. So God fulfills his plans, yes, but here's, I think, another truth that we see as we look at this again, and it's this. God feels emotion. God feels There is a lot of scholarly debate about this verse um, because scholars are saying, well, what is Jesus actually feeling in this moment? Okay, because again, he quotes Psalm 22, and we read just a few verses, but if you were to read the whole Psalm 22, you'd find out it's actually really hopeful. Like, it starts out incredibly bleak, but as most Psalms do, it resolves in hopefulness and triumph Complete confidence that God will accomplish his plan. And so uh, some scholars say, so that's what we should understand in this moment right here, is that yes, Jesus is quoting what sounds like a very bleak statement, but he's trying to encapsulate the whole of Psalm 22. 
He's trying to say, yeah, things look bad, maybe things feel bad, but I know this is good. I haven't lost faith in that. And I think that's true. I mean, right, we just made the point. Jesus knows he's fulfilling God's plan. He knows that he is accomplishing the plan that has always been in place. I don't doubt that. But I think we need to hold that intention with the truth that what's happening here is also just straight up terrible. I don't think we should just be quick to minimize the terror of this moment. When I was in high school, I was a part of some different jazz programs. And I remember one of our instructors, he was teaching us about soloing. And he said, guys, when you play, don't forget, there's just as much communicated through the notes you don't play as through the notes you do play. Sometimes there's just as much communicated through the words left unsaid as through the words said, right? And I fully believe Jesus knows all of Psalm 22. He knows how it ends. I believe that. But what does he quote in this moment? Just the first half of the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he wanted to quote right now. And also look at how he says it. Verse 34, Jesus cried with a loud voice. That's redundant. If you're an English teacher, you'd know. That's, that's redundant language. Mark could have just said, Jesus cried out. He would have gotten it. He could have said, Jesus said with a loud voice. He would have gotten it. But no, Mark says, Jesus cried out. And if you want to know how, he cried out with a loud voice. I think Mark's saying, look, don't miss how this is being said. Jesus isn't just like, oh, you know what would be good to do right now? I should quote Psalm 22 real quick. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. Now, it seems like Mark's trying to say Jesus is screaming this out in agony. And again, when you're on the cross, I don't want to get too graphic, but part of the way that crucifixion victims were dying is you're literally suffocating on yourself, on the fluid that's building up within you as you try to pull your body up to get breath. I think it physically cost Jesus something to scream this out in this moment. So I think we better believe that he actually meant it. And I want to be careful because here's the reality. I can't stand up here and tell you I know what Jesus was feeling. I don't. I wish I could look inside his head and, and say, well, yeah, what was the exact emotion? I don't know, but I think the bottom line that is clear is that Jesus was feeling in this moment. We follow a Savior who actually feels, who actually feels emotion. We follow a Savior who wept. We follow a Savior who bled. We follow a Savior who screamed out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's totally fun, well, maybe it's fun for me because I'm a nerd, but it's fun to just sit down and discuss, yeah, what was going on right here? What's Jesus thinking? What's he feeling? I don't know, but here's why it matters for our lives. Let's not miss the fact that we follow a Savior who has suffered. 
We don't follow some God that lives on top of some golden mountain who can't relate to us. No, Jesus knows what it's like to feel pain. And the good news for that is that when we feel pain, when we suffer, we have a God who has been there too. I know when I go through a tough time, it is comforting to have people come around and be like, I'm so sorry, I'm with you in it. That's comforting. But what's really comforting, to me at least, is to hear people say, I just want you to know, I've been there. And I'm going to be with you in it now. Because I know that person gets what's going on on a deeper level. How wonderful that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And that means he's with us in ours. God fulfills, God also feels. Let's turn this ring one more time. One more thing to see. And this is the most basic, and I think it's also just the most important for us to know. And it's simply this, God forgives our sins. God forgives. This question that Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think we should read that and be like, what? What did you just say? It's weird. This is something the church has wrestled with throughout history because, well, what do we know about Jesus? Well, first of all, we know he's God. He is 100% God. He has eternally been God. He's the second member of the Trinity. God the Son. We also know he's 100% human. And as a human, he lived a perfect, sinless life. Literally no rebellion against God the Father. A life perfectly submitted to God. No sin. Perfect. So he's God, he's perfect, and yet right here he's screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that should grab a hold of us and make us say, what is happening here? What's actually going on? And in classic Mark fashion, he doesn't explain it, he just moves on. <laughs> if you've seen the movie Up, Mark is kind of like the dog, Doug. Squirrel, squirrel! Right, read Mark, he literally is like, this happened, and then this happened, and then Jesus said this, and then this happened. It's kind of like, Mark, Mark, slow down, slow down. He doesn't explain it. But what's great is, some other authors of Scripture do explain what's happening in this moment. I was going to paraphrase it, but you know what, God says it best, so let me just go to him. 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake... He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's saying God the Father made perfect Jesus Christ to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. From 1 Peter, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Lastly, prophet Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. 
Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought, pe- that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think Scripture's been really clear. Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because he's done anything to deserve it, but because we have. Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because he should, but because we're supposed to scream that out. Because of our rebellion against God, we deserve to forever experience God as divine judge. And while Jesus deserves to forever experience God as loving father. But in this moment, Jesus experiences God as divine father so that we will always experience God as loving father. Jesus experienced God as divine judge so that we will always experience God as loving Father. Put it simply, he died in our place. And and Mark does make a little statement. To make clear that this has happened and that it's been successful, he points something out. Again, he jumps all over the place. So verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus dies. And all of a sudden, Mark jumps all the way across Jerusalem, all the way across town to something else that happens. And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. For you guys who know your Old Testament or you know Jewish history, you know that the temple was the place where God's spirit literally physically resided, right? And there were, there were different um, parts of the temple. There's the outer courts, the inner courts, the holy place, and then there's the room, the holy of holies, the most holy place. And that's literally where God's spirit was. And most of us probably know this, but if not, It's important to know there were curtains that would mark off the different parts. And the purpose of those curtains was to keep sin out of God's presence. Because God and sin don't mix. But it's not because God's like afraid of sin, like, oh, I can't be near it. No, it's sin can't be near God. I lit a piece of wood on fire and tossed it into the ocean. The ocean's not going to pull away around it, right? The ocean's going to extinguish that flame. And the truth is that because God is holy, he doesn't stand evil or injustice or oppression. He doesn't stand sin. He says, no, I'm not going to tolerate that. And so to get through those curtains... Sacrifices would have to be made. Sin would be put off onto an animal that was sacrificed, died in the person's place so that they could step past that curtain and be in God's presence without fear. And the curtain is torn in two. Not bottom to top. A human could have done that. No, from top to bottom. It's ripped in half. And what Mark's saying is, 
There is no barrier between you and the presence of God now. There is nothing you need to fear about entering his presence. Step into the presence of your loving heavenly father. And moment of full disclosure, I was really wrestling with, should I even make this point? Because it is so basic, right? I mean, it's so Sunday school. It's, it's like Christianity 101. And I think sometimes as a church, at least we have a history of being like, I think we've got the basics down. Let's talk about some more like intellectual stuff, some like next level stuff. Because I mean, we got the gospel, that's fine. And I'm a little ashamed to admit, I felt that. I'm like, ah, I don't know if I need to say this. No, I need to say this. I need to say this. Because guys, this is the truth that our faith rides on. That though we have been separated from God in our sin, God has forgiven our sin through what Jesus did on the cross. There is no barrier between us and God forever. And we can't outgrow that. We can't, out, we can't outlearn that. We can't outknow that. We can't outthink it. We can't outfeel it. We can't out-anything it. That's what our faith is based on. We have heard this a million times. And Grace Long Beach, we need to hear it a million more. This is what we believe, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you will never have to? And why do we need to hear it? Well, for one, because God actually expects us to tell other people that. Yeah, he expects that. Remember, what, is, what does Jesus say before he goes back to heaven? Go therefore and make disciples. Tell other people about me. Tell them what I've done so that they'll follow me. God expects us to let people know this awesome truth. So we've got to remember it. And so as we go out, we can't lose sight of this. This is the truth that undergirds everything that we do, and it is the single greatest thing that we can offer someone, is this truth. And hear me please saying, we're not throwing gospel tracts out of a car, right? We're not like, let me show you this illustration. Great, peace, I'll never see you again. No, no, we need to love people the way Jesus did, which was tangibly, which is in relationship, which is in partnership. Amen to all of that. Glad that that's what we're figuring out as a church. And at the same time, let's never lose sight of the fact that undergirds all of it. But also, this isn't just a message for someone else. It's a message for us. Because here's the thing, if there is anything Satan does not want you to believe, it's that your sins have been forgiven. If there's any truth he will try to make you forget, it's that one. Right? He'll say to you, you? Give me a break. I mean, maybe the person sitting next to you, sure, maybe. But you? No. No. I saw what you did last weekend. I've seen your search history on the internet. 
I saw the thought that crossed your mind as you drove to church this morning. I know that thing that you said. I know that thing you did that you are so ashamed to let anybody know about. Yeah, I know that. And you've repented to God. No, no, no. It's not going to work. Forget it. You know what we get to say to Satan? Shut up, Satan. <laughs> Shut up, Satan, because I, I know that I am saved because I read that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I will never have to say that. And the barrier between me and God has been torn open through his death, and now I will forever be in the presence of my God. Grace, let's never forget that truth. That is what we are about. Amen? Amen. God forgives our sins. So again, like a diamond, this thing is beautiful. I think there are probably so many more angles that I didn't even touch on. But we see that God fulfills his plans. Even in the midst of what looks like hopeless, terrible circumstances. God is still with us. God feels emotion. We serve a Savior who suffered and is with us in ours. And praise God, we follow a God who actually forgives our sin. And now we can be with him forever. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Well, the worship band's gonna come up. Um, and while they do worship, there will be people on the sides to pray. What I would say is this, are there any of those that stood out to you, the fulfilled, um, felt forgiven? If, if there's any truth that you really, that spoke to you that you want to hold on to, go ahead and pray with someone about that. Or more than that, if you're like, man, I got to be honest, I'm in a place where I don't feel forgiven by God. Satan, the shameful words he's speaking over me just feel like they're winning. Go and pray with a brother or sister so they can remind you that's not true. And if if you have never accepted the fact that Jesus has completely forgiven your sins, I encourage you to do that today. That's the greatest truth. Go to someone on the side walls. They would love to pray with you about that. Amen.